You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. I wouldn't need to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince you that we live in a, in a broken world. School shootings, about 100 people killed this weekend in tornadoes. Russian troops are pressing up against the Ukrainian border this weekend. And did you see that Austin and Albuquerque and New York City, Baton Rouge, Philadelphia, Portland have all set already, with still three weeks to go, all-time homicide rates for their cities? I don't have to convince you that the world around us is just broken. We feel it in, in the tension, the political tensions, the economic tensions, a pandemic tension. We feel about this time of year, kind of the end of year tension, maybe family tension, financial tension, marriage tension. Students, you, you feel it in the tensions of, of finals. Sorry to even mention it in church today. <laughs> I think that's why Christmas just raises people's spirits. Christmas time is like, like catching your breath. Like, like sitting down after a sprint. Christmas just seems to, to bring more hope. And for those who believe in God's word and have believed on the gospel, it does. The incarnation, God becoming man, interrupts this, this broken down bad news world. It's the interruption of all the things that we see around us that are going wrong. Uh, let me start with this statement this morning, a springboard statement. Christmas is the good news that the shadows of this world will be replaced by the glory of God. Christmas is the good news that one day all this brokenness will be gone. And the dark shadows of this world in which we now live will be forever shattered and replaced with God's brilliant and everlasting glory. So the Christmas story really is about humanity being reintroduced to the glory of God. That's the theme of Psalm chapter 8. So if you're a copy of God's Word, would you go with me please to that song of the Old Testament, the eighth Psalm. I encourage you to open up your copy of God's Word. I hope you have it with you today. You can share with someone who's next to you. Go to your, your device, your smartphone. Let's go to Psalm chapter 8 together. And as you get there, let me just tell you, it's an amazing Psalm. Book of Psalms in the Old Testament, if you're relatively new to church or relatively new to opening up your Bible, you, right in the middle you should find Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Those are kind of all there together. The book of Psalms is a, is a pretty good-sized book. Let's go to the eighth Psalm. Because in the 8th Psalm, we, it speaks of this privileged position of humanity. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews references back to, to Psalm chapter 8, and Hebrews chapter 2 refers back to Psalm chapter 8 to show that the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2 is in the coming of Christ. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8 points us to the glory of God that's revealed at, at Christmas, the story of incarnation, God coming as man in Christ. Psalm chapter 8, let's begin in verse 1. Let me just read through it first, then we'll go back and understand it together today. 
First of all, see probably the very top of, in your Bible, the very beginning of, of chapter 8, even before he gets to, to verse 1, it says, to the choir master. So we know this is a song. It says, according to the Gittith, with which is either maybe an instrument or a certain melody line, it's definitely a, a song. It even says here, a psalm or a song of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of, of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beast of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Don't close your Bibles. Because the Christmas story is this historical record of God sending to earth the one alone who could fulfill Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 perfectly portrays this, this perfect man who is exercising full and perfect authority in such a way that God's name will be perfectly exalted or made majestic, verse 1, majestic, verse 9, in all the earth. Now we were originally created to do this ourselves. We were created glorious. We were intended to, to glorify God in our glory, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But when we broke the system back in Genesis chapter 3, God's glory on us would be lost until Christmas. God's glory in us would be lost until the resurrection. When Jesus was born, the angels proclaimed, remember in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest. And so in Christmas, the glory that God intended for his creation begins to be restored. The door begins to open in Bethlehem. And one day, it will be fully restored. One day, there's coming a day when God's glory will be seen by all. The prophet Habakkuk speaks of this in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 when he says the knowledge of the glory of God one day will cover the earth just as the waters cover the seas. So we can say that if you will. Here's another statement about Christmas. The Christmas story is fundamentally about the restoration of glory. The glory in which we were designed. The glory in which we were created. The glory of God in the original creation. So as we study Psalm chapter 8 today, I trust that we will see the glory of Jesus who came to restore the glory of God to us and that this might help us have a greater grasp of the glory of Christmas. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. This is a believer's psalm. He is our Lord only to those who are God's people who belong to him. In Hebrew, this says right here, O Yahweh, our Adonai. Uh, the word Yahweh in your Bible more than likely is in all caps, L-O-R-D in all caps. That's, that's the self-sufficient name of God, the personal name of God, the one who is, who is sovereign over all things, the covenant-keeping God. He is Yahweh. But then the next word, Lord, there should be just a capital L in your Bible, but not necessarily O-R-D being in caps. That's Adonai in, in Hebrew. That means he's the sovereign master over all. 
And his very name, in verse 1, which means his ways, his nature, his character, is, verse 1, majestic. Or if you have the King James Version, Jesus' favorite translation, it should say excellent right there. Throughout all the earth, your name, your ways, your nature is, is majestic. It is excellent throughout all the earth. And so this sovereign, perfectly powerful God has done what? Verse 1, he has put his glory above the heavens. Glory is the sum total of the attributes of God. It's the fullness of who he is. It's the weight of his character. In fact, the word glory in Hebrew is the same word for weight. It's the weightiness of God, the the heaviness of God. It's why C.S. Lewis wrote the book, The Weight of Glory. It is the heavy attributes of God. Glory is the full total sum of all of his attributes. I wish we used that word interchangeably in in English, weight and and glory, because we could say after Thanksgiving, when I ate so much, I didn't add any weight, I added glory. So some of us, we have added a lot of glory this past year, perhaps, by enjoying our meals a little too much. So the glory here, the glory of God is, is inherent. Is within him. The glory of God is, is self-contained, is all contained within God. In other words, God isn't glorious because we praise him. He is God, therefore he has glory. God isn't glorious because we sing songs to him and worship him. God isn't glorious because we lift our hands to him. God is glorious simply because he is God. And to make sure that we do not confuse human greatness with the glory of God, what does the Lord do in verse 1? He said his glory above the heavens. Psalm chapter 8, verse 2 is a pretty fascinating verse. Verse 2 says, out of the mouth of babies, out of the mouth of, of infants, just, just toddlers, God, you have established this, this strength, and you've established this strength because you have foes, and, and you've given that strength, even out of the mouth of babies, to still the enemy and to still the avenger. I, I've always loved this passage because really it's a reminder to us that we do not need some philosophical argument to express the existence of God. We don't need philosophical arguments to prove God's existence. All you need is a baby making a few noises. Here's what I wrote in my notes for you this week. Look at an infant, listen to a baby coo, and atheism turns to nonsense. When you look into the face of a child that was created and knitted together by God's majestic hand. You look into the face of one who is knitted by God. And even the, the cooing, the, the laughter, the, 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 the funny sounding expressions of a little baby, of a toddler, of an infant, it's just one more reminder that there is a God who is strong in his glory. In fact, the Lord is so overflowing in majesty that it requires no stronger a defense than the praise of little kids. Jesus even said this in Matthew chapter 16. I mean, you should hear the kids at Highlands singing on Wednesday nights. Moms and dads, I hope you'll come and just listen every now and then to hundreds of kids singing out the praises of God on Wednesdays here at this church campus. Not only will it move your heart, you know what else it does? According to verse 2, it stills the enemy. It quietens the adventures. It quietens the arguments that are built up against the knowledge of God. It makes those arguments quake. When little child, children, little babies, little infants, even with the innocence of their praise and worship and noise, 
declares the strength of God. The transition in verse 3 and 4 is, is pretty clear. Verse 3, by the way, is the only first-person statement in all of Psalm chapter 8. When, when David says, when I look at your heavens, the only time David referenced himself in, in the first person. And what David is doing here in verse 3 and verse 4 is thinking about the vastness of space. He is looking up and considering the expanse of the stars and the skies, the glory of God, the, the beauty of the moon, the powerful energy of the sun. And basically says, verse 4, who am I? David looked up into the clear sky in the darkness of the night and he saw God everywhere. He called the sky, look at verse three, your heavens. It belongs to God because God created it and and creating the heavens was not some laborious task for God because David said in verse three, oh God, that was just the work of your fingers. We city folks have a hard time seeing the lights at night because of the light in our our city. Those of y'all who live out in the country, away from city lights, you were able to do the exact same thing that, that David did, just kind of look up into the sky and see the brilliant lights of, of the universe. But in another sense, we all see better than, than David saw generations and generations ago because we have telescopes and, and satellites and space stations, and we're really able to, to see the heavens infinitely more clearly than David. The Voyager 1 launched from Cape Canaveral back in 1977. Just out of curiosity, how many of y'all were born after 1977? Uh, my hands should not be up right now. 1977, okay, good. Whew, God, that makes me feel a little, little old looking, looking at that. The, that Voyager Explorer has been sailing throughout our universe ever since 1977. In fact, as of this morning, It is 14.4 billion miles away from the earth, traveling at 38,000 miles per hour, and it's sending back pictures like you see on the screen right now. On on, on the far left, the the, the blue picture you're seeing, that's that's Neptune. In the middle, you see Jupiter that was sent back by Voyager 1, and you see Saturn on the far right. I mean, how, how accurate was David to call that the work of God's fingers? The vast universe is just a divine finger painting. I mean, God is that large, that great, that the moon and stars did not find their place by some explosive accident. It was Almighty God who set them in their appointed places. This is God at work. In the midst of all that, David says at the beginning of verse, verse, verse 4, then God, how, how can you even think about us? How are you even mindful of someone like like me, when I see the vastness of the universe, and just remember, David is only able to see so far, not even realizing that there was solar system after solar system and universe after universe beyond that. We're rebellious little creatures that exist temporarily on this puny rock in a little galaxy on the far end of the universe. We're, we're nothing. In fact, it feels like we're less than nothing. This is the conclusion David comes to when he he looks up and sees all that is around him. But the second part of verse 4 is the Christmas story. Don't miss it. God cares for the Son of Man. The word cares right there at the end of verse 4. The Son of Man that you care for him. That word care is is not a a statement of of feeling. It is actually, in in Hebrew, it's the word pakad. And Picard means to visit somebody with friendly intent. The English language is so flat. The best we could do is use the word cares. But 
the richness, the, the context, the dimension of Hebrew is this, is this is one who will visit us with a friendly intent. It's probably what a lot of you will be doing in the next couple of weeks. You'll be visiting people, grandma, granddad, uncle, aunt, friends, parents, kids. I mean, hopefully with friendly intent, but you're going there with, with, with friendly intent. Or people are going to come to you through these next few weeks. They're going to come to visit you with, with friendly intent. Could it be that at Christmas time, we visit others with friendly intent only to mimic a God who also visited us with friendly intent? Who came to us in, in kindness. And let me make these two statements we see in here. I think about Christmas. Christmas means that God sees us. And that yes, he cares for us. God longs for us. He seeks us out. He takes care of us. His, his intent toward you is kindness. I need to say that one more time because some came to church today thinking that God's intent for you was judgment. God's intent for you is kindness. He provides for us. And God, compelled by his own love, longs to know his prized creation. Who is that? Look at verse 5. You who are crowned with glory and honor. In other words, biblically, this means you matter. Though God is infinite and we are finite, he notices you. He knows your name. He knows your situation. He knows your pain. He knows your hopes. He knows your dreams. He cares for you. This is what Christmas means. That God sees us. And that he cares for us. Secondly, Christmas means that God came to visit us in human form. And as Christians in the New Testament, we actually know this more than David even knew it when he wrote this down. Because David uses that, that phrase right there, son of man. The very end of verse 4, son of man. He's using that phrase, son of man, to describe weakness. In the Gospels, Jesus identified himself as the son of man. That we might identify with him as, as a human. In doing so, Jesus identified himself as God who had put on human flesh, that he was God who came in the form of a servant. He was God incarnate, God with flesh on to visit us with his unmatched grace and his saving love. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, the son of God became the son of man to enable men to become the sons of God. He came to visit us so that he could save us. Um, Psalm, Psalm 8, let's look at verse 5 here. Pick this up again, verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with, with glory and, and with honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. The point of these four verses is that God's glory was originally intended to be reflected in mankind. God's glory originally was to be reflected in mankind's glory. That was the point of, of God creating us, for us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That is the chief end of man, to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. But the creation story, and really all of history, is the story of God revealing himself through creation, chiefly and originally through the pinnacle of his creation, the crown of his creation, humanity. This is an amazing thought. We were originally created to reveal the glory of God to the rest of creation. Man, as originally and sinlessly created, had one assignment. We only had one job. Glorify God, 
enjoy him forever. Glorify God, enjoy him forever. And by chapter three of Genesis, we blew it. We only had one job to glorify God by revealing God into all the earth. So the story of the Bible really is the story of, of this king and his kingdom. God, of course, is the king. And in all creation and his creation was originally established on earth as a kingdom of glory through our lives. Adam and Eve were even somehow or somewhat deputized, verse 6, to exercise dominion over the works of God's hands. They were to exercise dominion under God's dominion, almost like a dominion of, of servant dominion or servant leadership. They were to fill the earth with all those who had joined them in the exercise of glorifying God and enjoying him forever with all this stewardship that we see here in verse 5, verse 6, verse, verse 7, verse 8. In the words of the psalmist, mankind was given the royal responsibility to steward life in such a way on earth that everyone on earth would realize how majestic God is. God created man with dignity and for dominion. But that original design was marred. It, it collapsed in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. The rebellious choice of Adam and Eve introduced this sin and this guilt and this shame and this separation and this suffering and death into the human experience. And that, that image of God in us was tainted, it was twisted, it was tarnished. And that perfection just collapsed. Ask a hunter. Sometimes it's hard to tell a bird to come near to be shot. Ask a fisherman how often the fish obey his commands. Animals now attack us. That's not how it was in the beginning when we chiefly reflected the glory of God ourselves. Listen, the first Adam welcomed sin and resisted the glory of God. That first Adam, back in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, that first, that first Adam welcomed in sin, welcomed in rebellion, welcomed in death. And remember the verse that we learned in, in the book of Romans? Many of us learned, even perhaps growing up in, in church, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Adam pushed back the glory resisted the glory. We pushed against his glory. We, we sinned and were separated from his glory. But here's, here's the story of Christmas. Here's Christmas right here. The second Adam, Jesus, forgives that rebellion, forgives that sin, and restores us to the glory of God. That's why we celebrate Christmas with, with joy and with songs. That's why we connote Christmas with hope Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Ultimately, and I hope I don't offend you by saying this, the Christmas story really is not about us. It's about the glory of God being reintroduced to humanity. We think about the incarnation, God in flesh. Let's remember that the Christmas story really is all about the glory of God. The fact the Christmas story is Psalm chapter 8, verse 9. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you stand with me please? Let's pray together.
Father, this is why we rejoice at Christmas, why our, our spirits are lifted. Hope seems to abound at Christmas time. It's a reminder to us that we were once pushing back on the glory of God, but now the glory of God at Christmas has been reintroduced to humanity. Christmas is that great news. Christmas is the gospel that the shadows of this world, it will be, they will be replaced by the glory of God. So we praise this God today. How excellent is your name, O God, in all the earth. For you took on the form of a man. Incarnation, God with flesh on. And you came to visit us with friendly, kind intent. To express to us that we could once again know the glory of God. Christ in us, the hope of God's glory. We remember and we celebrate again that your name is majestic.